This world is filled, isn't it, with upheaval? And it is a, a restless world. It is a changing world. It is a, an insecure place. It's a world filled with many threats, and the evening news is full of enough of this to oftentimes stir us to worry and anxiety. And we need solid ground, and we have found it in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have found it in his word. And there is one thing that all of us this morning should take to heart, and one thing in this world that will never be shaken, and that is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest powers in the universe are against her, but even Hades herself cannot defeat her. Satan hates the church, but even in doing his worst, only will find in the end that he will have his head crushed. We need the encouragement that comes from the scriptures. Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon entitled The Lord's Care of His People. And a sister in our midst sent this my way this last week, and I, I want to read a portion of it to you. Spurgeon says, the church is in danger. The church is in danger. Do you believe that, dear friends? No, it depends upon whose church it is. But if it is God's church, all the croakers in the world cannot alarm us. For we believe that God's church is safe enough, despite everything they may say. Let us rest then in this, quite confident that by all means and by any means, the church shall always be safe. She rocks today. A big wave seemed to strain her timbers, but he who built her is on board. The eternal hand grasps the helm. The mighty one with unruffled brow looks at the storm and bids the ship cut through the foam. She has not turned yet. Though rocks and quicksands have threatened her path, straight as a line, as an arrow from the bow drawn by an archer strong, she sped on her splendid flight, and on she shall go through a thousand hells, boiled over to see her heaven-ordained mission. Yonder mighty billow, you look out and you see the wave. Yonder mighty billow that seems ready to swallow her up and give her an eternal grave, she shall break before her prow. And if she for a moment be buried in the spray, she shall either come up white from the washing or she shall leap it, ascending up to heaven upon its crest. And if she goeth down again as though she would descend to the depths of the sea, the depths of defeat and dismay, it shall be but to bring up some sinner from the depth and to save a soul that otherwise might have been lost. Oh, blessed be God. The church is never insecure. Nay, nor yet one of her children. Once in Christ, in Christ forever. Nothing from his love can sever. I know that safe within, with him remains, protected by his power, what I've committed into his hand until 
that decisive hour. That was a man with a fertile mind, a mind that could speak in pictures and the waves that threaten us, beloved, do not threaten us in the end. Because of who has built the ship and because of who is at the helm, and we will have safe passage into harbor one day. Be encouraged by that thought. Be strengthened by that thought. Turn off your TV. Quit listening to the news and meditate on that thought. And may you be buoyed up. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 6 with that thought in mind. Luke is more determined by the Spirit of God that we should see the very thing that C.H. Spurgeon observed, and that is that the, the church is invincible. You remember earlier in this chapter, well, earlier in this book, I should say, we have seen that the evil one sent persecution to try and rattle the church, the Sanhedrin imprisoned, and then beat the disciples, the apostles, and they went back immediately and kept persisting and preaching in the name of Christ. And then we saw that, 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 that the evil one threatened the church by sinful corruption inside the church with Ananias and Sapphira who had lied to the Holy Spirit and to man. And you remember the dramatic end of that episode. And today we bump into yet another threat to the church of Christ, a new threat, one that also comes from within, one that speaks of potential division we're going to see a crisis arise that will threaten the unity of the church. Let's read together Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now in those days, while the disciples were multiplying in number, there was grumbling from the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not pleasing to God, for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we, we may put in charge of this need. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of the word. And this word pleased the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmen Parmenes, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these, they stood before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God kept, kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to multiply greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. We're going to break this passage into four parts this morning. I want you to look with me first at the problem presented. The problem presented, look at verse 1 again. Now in those days, while the disciples were multiplying in number, there was grumbling from the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the serving of food. This is the problem. There are some widows who are not being supported, not being fed, they're going without, they're going hungry, 
And you'll remember that the church now is not a church like ours where there are a few hundred people gathered on a Sunday morning, but this church is now upwards in the 20,000s. This is a massive, massive administrative work. And these, according to Luke, are the good old days. Do you see it? In those days, do you see how he's, he's thinking back to the, the early fruitfulness of the church and he's recognizing that the disciples were multiplying in number. The church is vibrant and healthy and the good news is spreading and there's this sense of awe and you remember the generosity of the people and the devotion of the people to the apostles' teaching and to the prayers to gathering, opening their homes and sharing food and sharing the Lord's Supper together. They're, they're, this is good. And right in the midst of all of this sunshine comes a towering cumulus cloud that threatens all the blessing that the church was experiencing. Here comes that billow that Spurgeon was speaking of, that wave that's going to shake the timbers and decimate the church and leave her on the bottom of the ocean in the graveyard where other ships have been destroyed. And you know this if you've been around church for very long, that, that this is just the way it goes. The church will know extended periods of peace and joy, and you begin to you begin to wonder if all that the scriptures say are, are, are really true about the church. I mean, maybe this really is the love boat on the sea of tranquility, right? And then lo and behold, something out of nowhere. People are good. People are unified. People are at peace. And then suddenly this, this swell comes up out of the ocean out of nowhere, and there arises a fence and a little bit of grumbling and a little bit of overlooking the needs of somebody and a little bit of murmuring. I don't know if you've caught it in the reading, but the scripture is clear here that it says that the Hellenists grumbled against the Hebrews. Now, the Hellenists were Jews who had returned to Jerusalem from foreign lands. You remember that Israel had been led off into captivity, into Assyria and Babylon, and there were Jews that remained, many of them intermarried, particularly those who were led off into captivity with Assyria. They had intermarried, and these are their ancestors now, and some of them are here for the feast, and others are here perhaps to retire, to return to the homeland. Whatever the case, you have a bunch of people who have come back into Jerusalem and they had been Hellenized. You remember Helen of Troy from, from your reading, maybe you don't in high school, but Helen of Troy, and you, these, these folks had been Greekized. It was not Greek to them. Okay, They understood the languages of, of the cultures in which they were reared. They understood those customs. Most of them did not know Hebrew. They did not know Aramaic. The Pharisees held them in absolute contempt. 
as second-class citizens. And you can imagine it. You remember, we've talked about this before in the book of John, where where you have the the woman at the well, and there's that question about, about where the Samaritans will worship and where the Jews will worship. And you'll remember that the Samaritans were half Jews. They were half-breeds, and there, there was so much animosity between these people that if, if Samaria were Oregon and we were Judea and we wanted to go up to Washington, we, we, would, we would go around. We'd go into Nevada, and then we'd go up Idaho, and then we'd come across Idaho to Washington because we would not want to get our feet dirty in that Oregonian land. these language barriers and the ethnic tensions that existed were significant, so much so that the Hellenists had their own synagogues in Jerusalem. And they used the Septuagint. They used the the Greek translation of the Older Testament because they couldn't understand the Hebrew. Many of these Hellenized people, many of these Hellenized Jewish wives had outlived their husbands and now there were a a, a number of widows that had come to Christ and they were utterly dependent upon the church to meet their needs. The Hebrews, on the other hand, were those now Christians, Jewish Christians who were raised in Palestine. They spoke Aramaic. They spoke Hebrew. They worshiped in their own minds at least more purely, utilizing the Hebrew scriptures, and they were in the right place using the right book under the right priesthood, all of that kind of stuff. And so as this church is growing, it's beginning to feel the pains of diversity. There is a sense of racial and cultural and religious superiority on the part of the Hebrews against the Hellenists. And many, I'm sure, had demeaning attitudes towards those Jews who did not reside in Israel and did not know the mother tongue. And so there were centuries, really, of spiritual pride and resentment that had grown up between these two groups of people. And now they've been reconciled in Christ and brought into one church And a problem arises between the Hellenists and the Hebrews because the Hellenistic widows are being neglected in the distribution of food. And widows marked one of the neediest groups of that day. There was no government aid. There was no Medicaid. There was no uh, pension system. There was nothing like an IRA. And so when your husband, who was your provider, died, you were left to family. And if you had no family then you were left to the church. And it fell to the church to provide. Flip over with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. All of this is built on a rich history of the Old Testament where over and over and over again, Yahweh had stressed the necessity to care for the weak, the orphan, and the widow And we see this later in the church as Paul writes to Timothy. He gives express instructions as to how to minister to widows. We'll pick up in verse 3 of chapter 5. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, 
They must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. When he uses the word honor here, it can mean to hold in high regard. It undoubtedly means that, but it means beyond that to support them financially. And and Paul is telling Timothy, you need to support those widows who are really indeed needy. But we're not just going to put every widow on the list. And he says, Here, here's the first line. And my friends, we need to hear this. We need to hold on to this. And I'm not just saying it because I'm reaching my fourth decade or whatever. You know what? Or my, no, uh, my sixth decade. There we go. <laughs> Slow down there, Doc. We got, a, got another year. We got another year. This confronts Americana. Where we push the elderly to the periphery and we do not hold them in high regard and we have a tendency to look at them and say, well, I hope they've saved enough. And what's sadder than that is that we live in a culture and even among some believers that still views mom and pop as though once once I'm established, they still need to just take care of themselves. And if they can't, then I'll shift them off to someplace where somebody can take care of them. I don't want to step on anybody's toes, and there are a lot of circumstances that need to be evaluated in all of these things. But, but beloved, do you see in this text that if any, any elderly woman was in need, it fell first. If you want to know what pleases God, it fell first to the children to take care of mom and dad. Young people, are you hearing me? There will come a day you're going to make more than your parents in all likelihood. And they may be in need. Understand, you can't wash your hands of that responsibility. And if, it, if, if the children were not there, but they had grandchildren, grandchildren, are you listening to me? They had grandchildren who might be able to contribute to their need. Then it would fall to them. This You can see it right at the end of the verse, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. This is good. This is right. Now Paul says, she who is a widow indeed, verse 5, and has been left alone, no family, has fixed her hope on God and continues in petitions and prayers night and day. She's faithful. But she, and then he inserts this, she who lives in self-indulgence is dead even while she lives. And again, isn't that the American dream in some ways? I just want to retire so I can, I can live in lavish. That's, that's, that's death, beloved. That's not life. She who lives in self-indulgence is dead even while she lives. And command these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 
Those are strong, strong words. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old. She's got to be over 60. Having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, again, she's got a good character, she's not idle. If she's brought up children, if she's shown hospitality to strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, if she's assisted those in affliction, if she's devoted herself to every good work. These are the kinds of women that we should be supporting who are widows. He says, refuse to put younger widows on the list for when they feel sensual desires and disregard for Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they've set aside their previous pledge. And I'm not going to take time to unpack that. And at this time, they also learn to be idle and they go around from house to house, not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things that are not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, to bear children, to keep house, to give the enemy no opportunity for reviling, for some have already turned aside after Satan. If any believing woman has widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened so that they may assist those who are widows indeed. You can see this, this is not something, again, that was, was just happening in the Old Testament or happening in the early church. This is something that we need to think through the implications of and we ought to be concerned for. And, and I thank God that this church has met many, 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 many needs over the years. You, you, you are a people for whom I give thanks always. But let us excel still more. Let us have our radars up so that we are aware of the needs that are around us and we are eagerly seeking to meet those needs and to share what the Lord has given to us. You remember James said, pure and undefiled religion before our our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now you remember back in the early chapters of Acts, we saw that the church was selling property and all of all of that to they were divesting themselves to invest in the kingdom of heaven and they were they were laying the money at the apostles' feet so that it might be distributed. And now the church has grown to such an extent that the apostles are having a hard time keeping up with, with all of this. So the question arises why were the Hebrew or the Hellenistic widows being overlooked? Well, I want to suggest two possibilities. Number one, it was possible that it was just oversight. Really, it it may have been, they were meeting in house churches, it may have just been a mistake, an oversight. The church had grown quickly, the the language barrier that existed, perhaps the Hellenists had not communicated clearly to the Hebrews, perhaps um, the need wasn't conveyed, maybe something was missed at at the level of translation. We don't know, sometimes things get, get lost through the cracks. We're not told in the text why. It's also very possible, secondly, that the Hebrew widows were being shown favoritism. And in some ways I side with this understanding because it seems implied by the text and by the fact that the Hellenists were grumbling against the Hebrews. They were faulting somebody. It may have been that the Hellenistic widows were just sort of down the priority list as we thought about our deliveries of the daily relief. 
it may have been that the apostles also delegated, I'm sure they did to some extent, the distribution. And, and those who they delegated to may have been Hebrews who just weren't thinking much about the Hellenists, or it may have been that they knew full well that they were depriving the Hellenists and thought that, well, Hellenists don't deserve much anyway. They're compromisers. We don't know. But what we do know at the end of the day is that there was a significant problem in that these widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And that's not good. That's not right. Needs must be met in the church. But what I don't think gets emphasized enough in the proclamation of this text is that the Hebrew or the, the Hellenists were grumbling. It's not right to deprive people or to show favoritism, but neither is it right to grumble against your brother in Christ. And you know this, and I won't take much time with it. It's, it's a word that arises time and again, particularly in the Old Testament, four times in the New. But wherever it shows up, this word grumble, it's never good, ever. Which is another reason why I think there must have been something going on underneath the scene here in that there was some sort of intentionality to this deprivation of the Hellenist widows. To be dissatisfied, to murmur, to grumble, to complain. Uh, we went through that in Philippians not too long ago. Philippians 2.14, you remember this? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Grumbling is an egregious sin. Like all those other sins of the tongue that we so quickly just kind of brush aside as well, that's just normal life. Slander, gossip, deceit, grumbling is one of those. It begins in the heart like every sin, and it makes its way out in the form of complaint. And so I'm very tempted to think that there are actually two parties in sin here. The Hebrews may have been showing favoritism, but the Hellenists were definitely sinning against God in grumbling. They had other options, didn't they? Do we think about that, by the way? When you're tempted to grumble or when you feel like you've been overlooked, do we pause and we say, what are my options here? Because there are godly options and then there are fleshly options. They could have endured more patiently. They could have spoken the truth in love and conveyed their concern. They could have believed the best about the Hebrews and sought, sought, sought reasons and sought, sought the solutions, but, but they didn't do, do any of that. Instead, they grumbled. And so Luke paints for us this fracture at its early stages. And again, this is another thing, another one of those situations that, that, that leads us again to think about the veracity, the truth of Scripture. If you were trying to persuade some people to, to, to come to Christ and to join his movement, why would you ever unveil the things, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know what I mean? And this is one of those things where Luke is just straight up, look, this was going on in the church. God's people were approaching a split. There was favoritism on the one hand, that unity eroding sin, and there was grumbling on the other. 
Beloved, unity is a treasure, and peace is hard won. And I have said this to you countless times, but I never weary of saying it. Label unity and peace as fragile in your mind in the sense that you understand that this thing can break quickly and and this thing can be stirred into all kinds of trouble very quickly. And what happens when that happens is not only our own heartbreak, but the witness and testimony of Christ is obscured. In fact, it's, 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 it's lied against because Christ purchased us with his blood to unify us and to establish peace between us and God and between us and one another. How dare we look at the blood of Christ and say, well, yeah, I know he did that, but I got issues. You see how silly that is? We need to handle that with care. And we need to watch over our hearts that we not show favoritism and that we not grumble, but that we're diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So we're not told who or how, but somehow this problem was communicated to the apostles and thankfully a budding schism is is averted. Uh, Look with me, secondly, after the presentation of the problem at the, at the solution proposed, verse 2, there is a solution proposed. So the 12, that is the apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples. He is calling the church disciples. This is the first time in Acts that, that Luke does that. They're learners. They're followers of Christ. And the apostles undoubtedly see that this situation is serious, see that it is threatening, and so they call the church together, they call a congregational meeting to resolve this issue. They understood that by the love that the church has for one another that all people will know that we are Christ's disciples and they had to do something so they summoned the congregation together and, and, and they said, it is not pleasing to God for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Now a number of translations will read, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God. Which sounds like the apostles don't really want to serve tables. That's not what they're saying. The LSB is, is better here. It's not pleasing in God's sight. It's not acceptable to him. It's not right before God that we should set aside the preaching of the word of God because that's what we've been gifted for. That's what he has commissioned us to do. He has given us that assignment. And I don't think for a second the apostles were too proud to feed a hungry widow. I don't think for a second that they've forgotten the lesson that they learned from Christ who took the towel and donned it on himself and then he washed their feet. Do you remember that? And he he said, this is what you need to do to one another. I don't think they've forgotten that lesson. I think they know that the greatest among you shall be your servant. 
But to undertake the relief of trying to fill, feed 20 some odd thousand people spread over a city, that would have devoured all the time they had for preparation and for preaching and for prayer. And what would have been the result? Well, the people would have been fed physically, but they would have been malnourished spiritually. They were called to preach. They'd been appointed to to serve the word of God and others would have to serve widows. Look with me over at 1 Peter in chapter 4. Peter will give us two broad categories for the ministries, for ministries within the church. But I want you to see this with your own eyes for a couple of reasons. Let's pick up in verse 8, 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, he's elevating this, above all, my ears are tuned in. Uh, my attention is all in. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. There will be sins. There will be trials. There will be conflict. We are going to butt heads. There will be friction because that's the way iron sharpens iron. That's the way God sanctifies his people. That, beloved, is when the reality of the gospel is played out in the church. When there's sin and there's trouble. And we've had every, we've, we learned all the lessons we needed to, lean, to learn vertically. We know what it is to be in trouble. We know what it is to have messed up. We know what it is to have sinned against God. We know what it is to have God seek after us and respond to us with a heart of compassion and kindness and and in love where he gave his own son to die in our place that we might be reconciled. You see, we've learned all of that, haven't we? And the point here is that should have implications for the way we live among one another. He says, you need, you need to be serious about this love thing. You need to be very fervent in cross-like love. He's not calling you to be fervent in Valentine's emotion. He's calling you to put on Christ, to take up your cross, to be ready to extend grace and mercy and forgiveness to one another. Then he says, be hospitable to one another. Without what? Grumbling. Don't do it. Very few of us live alone in here, and I tell you, we can help one another. When the grumbling machine gets going, when you put the quarter in the machine and it starts spewing out, help your brother and sister in Christ. Help your children. Don't do it. Put it away. Grumbling is overcome, by the way, with gratitude. And as Brian said earlier, that's for free. All right. Verse 10, as each one has received a gift, and everybody has, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God has given you a gift. He intends you to use it for his glory. Now note this in verse 11, whoever speaks as one speaking the oracles of God, 
whoever serves as one serving by the strength which God supplies. Do you see the distinction there, the simple division between two types of gifts? There are speaking gifts and there are serving gifts. Both are noble. Both are from God. Both are necessary. Somebody must serve the word and somebody must serve widows. And you who are given the gift of speaking, well, you are, to, you are to do that as though the oracles of God, you are the mouth of God as you speak the truth of the word. And those of you who are serving, understand who it is that you serve and how it is that you serve. You serve by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and might forever and ever. Amen. The apostles were called to serve Christ by speaking the truth of the word, by preaching the gospel, by teaching the word, by building up the church, by evangelizing, by ministering. They trafficked in the word of God. But that is not everybody's call. In fact, that's not most people's call at some level. Remember James, let not many of you be teachers, my beloved brethren. More people are gifted to minister in a serving capacity, which unfortunately, because we're sinners and because we tend to, to think that the guy up front, something, he, he's something more and that's, that's something greater and, and that's what I want to be. And we've got that pride of life that John talks about that wants to be CEO or wants to be homecoming queen or wants to be something in the eyes of men, that we tend to demean the serving gifts. Beloved, we cannot do that. He who makes the money to buy the food is really important. She who prepares the food is really important. Those children who do the dishes after the food really matter. There isn't a ministry in this church that is not vital to Christ. We have different giftings, but the same Lord. We are, we are brethren, are we not? Are we not all on the same team in the same field going in the same direction? In our James study on Wednesday, we talked about that. Here's, here's James, the half-brother of the Lord. I mean, this guy ate with Jesus, played football with Jesus. This guy, this guy, I mean, he knew Jesus. The Lord of lords, the King of kings. My brother, he's the high king of heaven. Oh. And yet James, in the beginning of his letter, begins just like this. James, a slave of Christ. And then throughout the whole letter, he just keeps saying, brethren, my brethren, my brethren. How does a man who comes from that kind of stock, Joseph and Mary, how does a man like that, brother Jesus, how does a man like that see himself as a sinner among the rest, redeemed by grace. 
Don't ever diminish any ministry. It's been noted around here, and I, I, I think rightfully, that sometimes we get a bee in our bonnet that somehow we want to start a ministry, and it's almost always a teaching ministry. Why? I don't want to demean teaching either. You know that I don't. Uh, but we get a lot of that. We are fed and fed and fed. We need more exercise. Let's start those ministries. Well, it was an important part of the church to feed these widows. And it was an important part of the church that the word of God keep being preached. And so the apostles proposed a solution. Verse 3, therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and full of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this need. I love this. The proposal was that the church be given reign to, to determine, to look among them, to evaluate the men in their midst, and, and, and to find some that would fit a certain criteria and then the apostles would confirm and appoint those men ultimately at the end. They were to have a good reputation. They were to be full of the Spirit. And they were to be full of wisdom. They were to be, in other words, men of integrity who were marked by good character. They were to be Spirit-filled men living according to the leadership of the Spirit by the Word of God. They were to be capable men who knew how to apply biblical principle in practical matters of life. That's what wisdom is. And I want to note this. These were not a group of men who put on all of that as a means of somehow attaining to a position of the church. No, these men, I don't think it took them long to choose, frankly. I think these men were already demonstrating these things. And the church could look among them and go, yeah, how about this guy? And everybody go, oh, yeah, that guy. Stephen, no doubt. No doubt. And then they return to this. They just, they just drop the gavel again. But we will not devote ourselves to that. We're going to devote ourselves, he says in verse 4, to prayer and the service of the word. The apostles are all resolved to be faithful to their calling. And pastors, like all Christians, are to be devoted to prayer. And yet, even more so, I love this. Here's Spurgeon again. He says, of course the preacher is above all others, distinguishes a man of prayer. He prays as an ordinary Christian, else he were a hypocrite. He prays more than ordinary Christians, else he were disqualified for the office that he has undertaken. Beloved, you should expect that your shepherds are men of prayer. You also should join them in prayer and follow their leadership when they call the church to prayer. And the Apostle Paul, I'd, I'd like to take time to do this, but you can just look through his epistles, Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Paul is always telling the church, I give thanks to God for you in, in, in every remembrance, in all my prayers, continually offering up thanks. Paul is a zealous prayer. Paul also was committed to the ministry of the word. We will take time to look at this in, in Acts since we're not there. Flip back to Acts chapter 20. Notice Paul's pattern. We'll just look at a brief section of it. Verse 18. He calls all the elders 
from Ephesus, from the church in Ephesus. And verse 18 says, and when they had come to him, they said to him, or he said to them, you yourselves know, he's calling their conscience to account, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, I, was, I didn't wait till the second day. From the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying. Publicly meaning he'd preach a message as I'm preaching a message now and then tonight I'll be over. Give me your address. He preached from house to house, from church to church, from, from the pulpit and, and from the pew. He was constantly speaking the truth of the word of God. Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks about repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the gospel. And even in the end of this part in Acts 20, he says, I will, I'm, I'm going to commend you to the word. Paul understood the necessity of preaching the truth, always preaching the truth. And I had a number of passages in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy to look at, but I'm just going to turn now to Ephesians chapter 4. I'll just tell you about it. Pastors, you know this, are given to the church with an express purpose to equip the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. The Bible is the task and trade. Preaching is the task and trade of the preacher. And every good shepherd must guard his time against involvement in good things that take away from the very thing that he's been called to. And these apostles are not going to be distracted from what God has called them to. Now listen, beloved, and I want you to hear this, it, it does not mean that pastors can't have calloused hands or a shirt that has some paint on it, okay? That's okay. They can do their part at the workday. And I, I would add this, it doesn't mean that those who are called primarily into acts of service can't also declare the word of God, whether in evangelism or even preaching. Consider that the first guy on our list, his name is what? Stephen. In a chapter and a half, we're going to find Stephen going to his death for having preached one of the greatest sermons of all time. So there is, there is some gray in here. There's some overlap. Don't get, I've had people come to me at a work day trying to hush that shovel out of my hand. I'm like, it's okay. Let me dig for a while. <laughs> I like digging, and I like being with you. Man, if I got relegated to my office I just couldn't do it. That's why I always wanted to be part of a small church because here I can know people and be involved with you and that is the delight of every elder here. Wise pastors and wise churches understand the importance of preserving time for preparation for the preaching of the word of God. And again, you all are very good at this. You're committed to the truth. I know you don't want me, uh, you know, dawdling my time away doing other things. You, 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 you want to be fed, and I want to feed you, and that works out swimmingly as long as there's time to prepare, right? 
I don't want you to stop coming by the office. I don't want you to not call me. I, I just can't stand it when people walk in and go, I hate to take your time, but. And I tried to restrain myself and very graciously receive it and say, they're just trying, Dave, to keep you in the word of God and your nose to the grindstone, and that's good. But I want to come out of my skin and say, are you kidding? I'm so happy you're here. That's the nature of it, isn't it? And it's beautiful. We want to play football with your kids. And we want to help move the piano, even if in my later decades here, I'm just moving the bench. But, uh, and, and you just need to understand, if I got to go before other people do, it's never because I'm not having a good time. I, I just, oftentimes, I, I'll be honest with you here, since he's here, I, I used to watch Alan sometimes at a wedding or whatever. I'm like, where's he going? <laughs> now I understand it. It's called the, pa- it's called the pastor's slip out. That's what it is. And, and every... Every pastor knows it, particularly on a Saturday night. I'm gone. I love these people. I would much rather in some ways just stay at the wedding and enjoy myself. But I've got a duty. And these men understood this. All right, number three, the seven picked. We're going to move more quickly. And this pleased the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon, and... Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, all of, all of these men were, were, were Hellenist Jews, except for the last one. He was a, a man who had converted to Judaism and now has become a Christian, that is Nicholas. Well, this, this, this was a pleasing solution to the whole congregation. They didn't want their preachers giving their time to, to other necessary ministries around the church, they would see to that. And so they, they choose these men, and MacArthur makes a, a good note here. He says, if, if this is true that they're all Hellenists, it was a demonstration of the loving unity of the church. Are the Hellenists being neglected? Well, then let's choose Hellenist men to take care of this. You see, they were dealing with the prejudice and the bias right up front, weren't they? Since the Hellenists felt slighted, MacArthur says, the church decided to appoint seven men from among them to rectify the situation, end quote. And we don't know much about any of these men other than what's written here. There's Stephen. He's full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He likely heads the list because he's setting us up for where he's headed next, Luke is. And then we, re- we read about Philip, who we know from Acts as an evangelist. He takes the gospel to the Samaritans in chapter 8 and again to the Ethiopian eunuch in, in chapter 8. And so... He does the work of the ministry, both in serving and in speaking. And the other five men, we just don't know much about. And so I'm not going to take the time to, to, to bleed church history all over you and, and the tradition of men. We don't know. But the church then, there knew. And, and these men were all men of character, all men filled with the Spirit, all men who were wise. And so they stood before the apostles, and after praying, verse 6, they laid their hands on them. And this is just a, a commissioning of sorts. It signifies that the apostles affirmed the choice of the church and they recognized these men as appointed to this ministry and these men were held up in front of the congregation as those who would, who would orchestrate this thing. And the question arises in this text, doesn't it, whether these seven men can be viewed as, as the first official deacons. And it is true that the ministry 
in this text mirrors some of the ministries that deacons perform. And it is true that the word deacon, though it's not in the text, there are forms of that word in both verse 1 and verse 2. Verse 1, it's translated serving, and verse 2, it's translated serve. But nobody in this list is ever called a deacon. We don't bump into them till later. And so I think it's better to think of, of these men in this situation as forerunners, if you will, to the office of a deacon. And it's with this division of labor then, some given to speaking, some given to, 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 to serving, that we see, fourthly, the church propagated. The church continues to grow. Verse 7, and the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to multiply greatly in Jerusalem. Here's Spurgeon again with that ship just crashing through the prow of the boat, driving right through the waves. This is what Luke is trying to get across to us. This is another of his summary statements in this book. And this gets us back to the main thing he's driving at. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is indomitable. Not abominable, I know you're used to that word, indomitable. It can't be dominated. It cannot be, it cannot be turned aside. It cannot be shipwrecked. No, the power of the Spirit through the Word sends the ship sailing on even in the midst of all of these things that threaten it. Look at the language there again. The Word of God is it's spreading. The word of God is just being broadcast by the church. Seed is flying everywhere in Jerusalem and outside of Jerusalem in the neighboring areas. We saw that in the last chapter. It's spreading and it's growing and more and more converts are being added to the the fellowship. And the most shocking statement in all of this is that it wasn't just among the common folk. Look at how he finishes off the verse. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Who stood most steadfastly against the Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry? The Jewish leadership. Who opposed the church and persecuted the church most intensely? And yet here we are with this statement just inserted in here by Luke that a not just some priests, not just many priests, but a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. No wonder the hostility just will begin to pour out with greater intensity in the days ahead because the Jews were, the Jewish leadership was so concerned in in keeping the people as their own and under their own authority and, 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 and bowing before them, if you will. And now they've lost not only the people, but they're losing some of their own ranks who are embracing Christ as Lord. Now look at that phrase, they became obedient to the faith. That's important. Do you remember back in John chapter 6, Jesus has fed 25,000 people or more with some bread and some fish. He goes up on the mountain. He crosses over the lake with the disciples. The 25,000 wake up in the morning after sleeping on their cots and and, and where is he? And, And it's breakfast. We need food. So they book it around the lake to the other side. They find him in Capernaum, and they, they say to him, look, you know, uh, hey, how did you get here, and what happened? And, uh, and Jesus says, don't, don't mumble about your words. I know why you're here. You didn't come seeking me. You came seeking 
signs. You want to be fed again. And Jesus says to them, don't work for the the bread which perishes, but for the bread which endures to eternal life, which God will give you if you ask him. Their immediate question is, what works can we do that we may work the works of God? Folks, that is the wrong question. Most people believe that God wants some kind of work in exchange for salvation. Remember what Jesus told them? This is the work of God. There's only one. That you believe in the Son whom he sent. According to Romans 1.5, Paul was made an apostle, get this, for the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name. And in his closing benediction in Romans 16.26, Paul says the gospel has been made known to all the Gentiles leading to the obedience of faith. The Bible teaches clearly that salvation is by grace through faith. It is not of works that no man should boast. And my friends, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you may still be thinking in that default mode that if you're going to get right with God, you've got to clean up your life. Listen, you will never be able to do it. God has set a standard that is so high, you will never be able to leap over it. The standard for heaven is absolute moral perfection. And if there's any adage on planet earth that everybody knows is that nobody's what? Perfect. Except it's a lie. There was one perfect one. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law on behalf of all who would trust and hope in him. He lived the life that you failed to live. He made He made atonement for your sins by dying on the cross and drinking down the wrath of God that was due for you. And understand this, that that if you will put your trust in him, if you'll become obedient to the faith, obedient from the heart, if you will put your hope in Christ and believe the gospel message, God says he will forgive all your sins and reconcile you to himself and give you, he will punch your ticket for the kingdom of heaven. But you must repent and you must believe in him. There's never been so gracious a God. There's never been so so abundant an offer. And yet millions by millions will refuse him and refuse the offer. Don't do it. Come to Christ. Come to obedience to the faith like these priests did. All God wants you to do is humbly acknowledge your sin and your need and to bow the knee before him. Look to him dependently in faith, and he will fill you with life. Let me make two observations very briefly in conclusion. Number one in this text, we see, don't we, church, the delegation, the need for delegation and the division of labor in the church. Some of us must speak for the most part, and some of us must serve for the most part. The church is a ministry by God's design, by the people, and of the people. 
all of them indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but it, it is really a ministry that is grassroots. It's divinely organized. We have speakers. We have servers. But, but it, is, it is brethren serving alongside of brethren, and it is in that way as we each serve in our own capacities that we bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to remind you again, there is no model anywhere in Christianity for a professional ministry where the hired people do all the stuff. And yet there are churches all over the place that do just that. They hire a lot of people and they pay a lot in salary and keep a, a few people very, very active at the church while the rest, you know, again, are, are sitting by on the stands and watching. If that's your phone, I got the message. I'm just teasing, sort of. No. Here's the second thing, and I wanted to sit with you. Difficulty in the church is not reason to leave the church. There was real offense, and there was real grumbling. Some were being neglected, whether intentional or not, which is always a cause for hurt feelings and for a sense of inferiority and smallness. And I don't really have my place among these people. And nobody really appreciates me. And I think maybe I'd be better appreciated somewhere. You, you know how the logic goes because my heart said it and so is yours. And then there's grumbling in the early church here against other members in the church, and that's not a mystery to us either because we've been there. These other people may have done something wrong. They may not have done something wrong, but whatever the case, there is some attitude. And brothers and sisters, I, I want to assert this. I was checking my heart today. Is that really true? But as I think about my experience in the church Experience teaches us, I think, that these are the typical reasons why people go. I don't feel appreciated here, and I don't like that person. And we dress it up, you know, when, when it's time to go. The Spirit's convinced me it's time to go from here. I think there's a lot of problems here, and, and, and so many times, I think, when I peel back all the layers of those, those, those speeches I have heard over the years, when I peel it back, what I find at the bottom of it is personal hurt and a sense of not belonging. I've had a number of people convince or, or talk to me over the years about the fact that I just don't feel like I fit in here or that I really have a place here. And they're just taken back when I look at them in my office and say, that's funny, me too. Friends, a self-centered look is what will lead you to those places. You've been saved by Christ so that you might no longer serve yourselves, but him who died and rose again on your behalf. That's 2 Corinthians 5.15. You should memorize it. It's an outward look to love God and to love others as you already love yourself. 
It's that outward look that he's after. And that's what, what he set us free from is that, that selfish, small, nose-in-my-belly-button commitment to me. No, I'm committed to Christ. I'm committed to the good of these people. What can I do? Where can I pitch in? I don't want to be proud, but I think God has, has gifted me to, to serve in this capacity. Get going, but serve. You see, what, what we might have seen in this text is the first church split by the sixth chapter of Acts. Not long after the Holy Spirit descended and gave birth to the church, we would have seen the first split. We would have seen the first church of Jerusalem and then the second church of Jerusalem. We might have had Hebrew Baptist and Hellenist Baptist, right? But there was communication, there was acknowledgement of a problem, the leadership of the church was, was not the last one to know. They, they pulled him in and said, man, we're having some troubles and we think you ought to be aware of this. And those men proposed getting the church. They didn't stand on high and say, take two pills and call us in the morning. They got involved and they said, look, brethren, you, you, have, you have wisdom. You've been granted wisdom by God. Look among you. And all the church, all together, practicing the one another's. It's not said in the text, but I can next to guarantee you there was some confessing of sin to one another. I can next to guarantee you that somebody forgave one another as God in Christ had forgiven them. Somebody believed the best about those Hebrews and helped the Hellenists come along to soften their heart. And, and the Hellenists were shown the error of favoritism. And there was forgiveness and there was compassion and there was softness of heart. They gave preference to one another in honor and they put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And this church demonstrated what no other organization on planet Earth can, can, can demonstrate. And that is true love and unity in the midst of diversity and difficulty. The world gets together like birds in a feather, and the minute one of those birds pecks another one, he's out. He's finding another flock. But that is not us. We are devoted to one another and to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his glory be demonstrated in the church, which means that we must love one another as he has loved us. The gospel... Really, when you boil it down, is the reconciliation of, 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 of warring parties through sacrificial love. And when the church puts on that kind of thing, the, a church that's selflessly excelling in love for one another over the long haul is a very, very, very powerful witness to the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. We have a split in our past. And I'll tell you, it left a dent in this community for 20 years. Beloved, may we excel still more. Let's pray. Music team, come on forward. Lord Jesus, you gave your life for your people. And you are building your church. And Lord, it is built of sturdy stuff. Because you are an unfailing savior. 
Help us, Lord, to be diligent ourselves, to appreciate you and the sacrifice you made. And Lord, may we live not as those who throttle our brother who sins against us, but as those who love, who keep no account of a wrong suffered. May we love as you loved. Even being persecuted, Lord, you, you prayed from the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And you did the work, you finished it. Lord, help us to incur that kind of thing ourselves. We will never suffer what you have suffered. But Lord, you have called us to suffer in your footsteps. You've told us that in scripture. Help us not to revile or to return. Help us not to be embittered or to grumble. But Lord, may you be honored and glorified in each individual life in this church and in us corporately by our sincere love for one another. Make us fervent and hot, so hot that people can feel it, that you might be glorified in all. Amen.